Proverbs of the New Testament because there's a lot of wisdom within its pages and because it sometimes reminds us of the book of Proverbs. And the kind of wisdom that we're going to be looking at today had, has to do with trials and how to, correct, uh, how to have a correct approach to trials that often come up in our lives. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to the book of James. Before we start reading, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we could come together, learn from your Word, Lord. I pray that you'll open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to what you would have to say to us today, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1, reads this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So this is a letter, and it's always customary to give a greeting. And James is writing to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. And the word that he uses to describe tribes is diaspora, which literally means the dispersion. And it's interesting because he uses the phrase 12 tribes because by that time, the 12 tribes of Israel didn't really exist. Most likely, he used using this kind of language to refer to Jewish Christians who are scattered throughout the entire Roman Empire. And if you do some deeper study into the letter, you'll find that James draws a lot upon Jewish literature and traditions. And of course, because of the way the church worked back then, every Christian Jew or Gentile probably got their hands in the letter and read it. So after his greeting to Jewish Christians spread across the entire Roman Empire, James begins the, the meat of his epistle by saying this in verses 2 through 4. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, James probably begins his letter like this because he knows that these Jewish Christians have come under heavy persecution. And at that time, Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism, and Jews were persecuted without mercy in the Roman Empire. So to be Jewish and to be a Christian meant you were a target for persecution. And even under some emperors, you were a target for execution. And of course, this idea of facing trials is very broad. It can be financial. It can be relational. It could even be spiritual trials that we go through. But James exhorts these people by saying that when these circumstances enter into your life, consider it all a joy because these are the means that God is using to grow you in your faith. And the more your faith is tested, the more you depend on God for comfort and relief, the more your faith will grow. And when James says, consider it pure joy, he's saying that when you face tough trials, face it with a posture of joy. And that's so antithetical to being a human, all right? Because we're taught from an early age that when something doesn't go our way, we have to fight someone or something to make it go our way because it just isn't fair. And James doesn't say anything about the fairness of the situation. He doesn't care if you're right. He doesn't care if you're wrong. Whatever happened to you, whether it was arbitrary or whatever, he says, whatever it is, consider it pure joy. And joy isn't that superficial happiness or anything. It's this correct mindset that you have because you know that as you go through this, God is growing you and maturing you more and more into the image of Christ, into the person that he wants you to be. 
As one of our elders once said to me, pain hurts, but pain brings me closer to God, for which I'm grateful. And when the process of pain and trials and tribulations are through, you become mature and complete in Christ. And that doesn't mean that you attain any sort of spiritual perfection, but it does mean that your faith becomes more and more real and you grow closer and closer to God. And it's through this process of persevering through pain and trials and tribulations that you get the fruit of the Spirit, that joy, that peace, that patience, that kindness, that goodness, all that mercy, all that good stuff. That's what happens when you go through trials and keep your focus on Christ. You bear good fruit, and you're stronger in your faith than you ever were before. And that's what James is telling the church here right off the bat. You're going to go through some trials. Some of you will even die. Some of you will be tortured. But God will produce fruit in you, and that will only serve to strengthen your witness for the gospel. So consider it all joy whenever you go through the nasty circumstances of life, knowing that it makes you stronger and that God is growing you more and more and more into the image of his son. And James goes on to say this next in verses 5 through 8. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So after he describes that we should endure suffering and pain with joy, James shifts his attention to the topic of wisdom. And when I think of wisdom, I think of Master Yoda. Wise Jedi was he. Or I even think of Yogi Berra, a baseball people out there. But I also think of King Solomon who asked God for wisdom in ruling his kingdom. When Solomon asked for wisdom, he did so wholeheartedly. He didn't say, you know, God, if you're, if you're there or whatever, give me some of that wisdom because I need it, you know, to kind of do my thing. That's not how he, how he asks God. He says, God, I've seen what you've done for my father, David, and I know that you promised that this would be a great kingdom. So give me wisdom so I can govern it well. And God granted Solomon wisdom because he didn't ask for a long life. He didn't ask for treasures or jewels or anything. He asked for wisdom. And wisdom is one of those things that we know intuitively what it is, but we have a hard time defining it, okay? So I'm going to define it. Wisdom traditionally means good judgment, but biblically speaking, it means skillful living. When you read through the book of Proverbs, you're not getting some high abstract theological treaties and platitudes or whatever. You're getting good advice on how to live your life skillfully. And what's interesting is that in the book of Proverbs, the author writes this. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. So in order to gain wisdom, you must first trust God with all your heart. And that's what James is saying right here. If you want wisdom, those skills for living well, then you need to wholeheartedly believe in God and ask him for it. Because God will never turn away a request for wisdom because he wants us to live our lives in honor to him and total reliance on him with wisdom. But we can't ask unwaveringly. We can't expect anything from God if our faith is weak and unstable. When you pray to God, you must must come boldly before the throne of grace like it says in the book of Hebrews. 
Now, a lot of scholars will say that verses 2 through 4 have nothing to do with verses 5 through 8. They're two completely different thoughts. One's on trials, one's on wisdom. But I would argue that a lot of the trials that we go through require wisdom. We need to have the proper response to those bad things. Yes, we need to be joyful, as it says, but you navigate those circumstances, and you need wisdom in order to navigate them. So when you go through trials, we need to do so with an attitude of joy, but also rely completely on God and ask him for wisdom and moving through those circumstances of life. And James goes on to say this in verses, I think, 9 through 11. It says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blo- its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Again, this seems kind of random, but James is continuing this thought of joy and trials. He says believers who are in lowly places should take pride in the fact that they're actually in a high position. And when James says lowly, he's most likely referring to people in dire financial straits. So why are they in a high position? Because the fact that they've been brought low means that they're being put through the fire so that they can grow closer to God. You see, with James, there's no concept of a prosperity gospel. You don't find that in Scripture at all either. What we often think in the church today is that if we're obedient to God, if we pray enough, if we have enough faith that somehow we'll be more wealthy, we'll be uh, so much more happy, things will go our way. But look at the story of Job perhaps the richest man in all the land at his time. He was so holy and so righteous that he would preemptively offer sacrifices to God on behalf of his children, even if they hadn't sinned. But God allows Satan to take away everything from Job, his livestock, his money, his family, his health. This was a man who was considered righteous and who loved God with everything he was, and yet he'd lost everything. And throughout that book, you see Job's friends telling him to curse God and die. But Job says that I know that my Redeemer will come through, that he's fair, and that justice will eventually win the day. And because of his faithfulness, God blessed Job above and beyond anything he ever had before. See, when we're in a lowly position, God is with us there. But when we're in a high, haughty position, God isn't with us. And when James says the rich, he's not talking about Christians who have a lot of money, okay? The church relies on people to support it financially. It always has. He's talking about Christians who seek wealth for the purpose of having wealth and boasting in it. But James reminds those people that wealth is fleeting and someday it will vanish into thin air. So for the poor, they can rejoice because they're going through a trial. And for the wealthy, they can rejoice because at some point they will be there too, either in life or in death. In God's economy, there is a place for people who have money and for those who lack it. And James goes on to say this in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trials, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So James summarizes what he's been saying these last 10 verses. You're blessed because you go through trials, and as a result, you're going to gain the gift of eternal life. And James isn't talking about doing good works in order to achieve salvation. We know that salvation is a free gift from God. 
But what James is saying is that persevering in your faith through trials is a sign that you've been saved by God. And as it says in Ephesians, those who live by the Spirit will continue to walk in the Spirit. And the gift of persevering in the Spirit is eternal life. So those trials we go through that challenge us and cause us to lose heart are actually preparing us and purifying us for eternal life with God. So when those trials come, when those times are tough, you can know that God is testing you to purify you and draw you closer to him as he makes you more into the image of his son. But James isn't done with his train of thought here. He says this in verses 13 through 15. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So James has just finished talking about trials, but he goes on to give a qualifier to what he's just said. He's basically saying you're going to go through some trials and they're going to be external to what's going on in your heart. But there will be trials that stem directly from the evil, from the issues that are going on in your heart. And we call those temptations. And whenever you're tempted, you can't say that God is tempting you because that's not what he does. God's not in the business of trying to lead you astray by taking advantage of the evil desires within your heart. No, temptation is all on you because you develop your evil desires, because you nurture them, you worship them. And then when you see something that draws out the evil desires, you succumb to them. And then when all is said and done, you blame God for doing this. It says in Proverbs 19, verse 3, it says, A man, man's folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. And James describes this process of temptation. It's born out of your evil heart and that it causes you to sin. And as you continue to sin, your end is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. In other words, that crown of life that he mentions in verse 12 is out of reach for those who nurture their sin and continually seek the way of death. So there's a difference between a trial and a temptation. A trial is something that happens that's out of your control. A temptation is something within your control. And James goes on to say this in verses 16 through 18. He says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be kind of first fruits of all that he created. So James basically says, Yes, you may be tempted. But that's because you've nurtured those evil desires within your heart. But God is in the business of giving you good things. He doesn't give his children bad things, like it says in the Gospels. Yes, bad things happen, but that's because this world is marred from its original form. And because Satan, the enemy, the accuser, is present in this world. When you're tempted, it isn't God who's doing the tempting. It's your evil desires mixed with being in the wrong place at the wrong time. All good things come from God. There is this scene from Seinfeld that I like a lot for all you Seinfeld fans out there. And it illustrates how most of us approach God. George Costanza is in his therapist's office and he's talking to his therapist about how nothing ever goes his way. And he tells his therapist, God would never let me be successful. He'd kill me first. He'd never let me be happy. And his therapist says, I thought you didn't believe in God. And George says, I do for the bad things. And 
I think that's how we approach God sometimes. When things are going well, we don't thank Him. But when things are going poorly, we blame Him. But all good stuff comes from Him, and we need to be thankful for that. And James refers to God as the Father of heavenly lights, meaning He's the one who created the stars and the planets and the galaxies. And those things turn, and those things change, and those things move. But their Father doesn't. What James is saying is that, yes, it will be light, and yes, it will be dark. But God is always good, and you can always count on Him for that. And the best thing that God is doing for you is that He saved you. He's given you birth through the gospel, that He sent His Son to die for our sins on the cross, so that way we may be the first fruits of the gospel. In other words, we're the ones who are the tangible expression of the gospel. And that's the greatest thing that He's done for us. So when you're going through trials— You can remember that God has already given you the greatest gift of all, abundant life now and eternal life forever. So what does this all mean for today? How can we bridge this gap? Well, number one, I think we need to remember that God uses trials to grow us in our faith and closer to Him. Now, I'm not saying that God causes trials, but I'm saying is that He uses them. You see, this world is marred by sin. It's separated from the way it was intended to be. This world was intended to be good and pure and perfect, but human beings, like it says in the first couple chapters of Genesis, messed up their chance of living in perfect harmony with God and with creation. So we live in a world where sin and evil is present, where evil things happen. And because evil things happen, we face trials. Those aren't the fault of God. It's simply the fact that death reigns over this world. And it's what we can expect in our lives. We can see death face to face. We will see evil up close and personal. And yet God finds ways to use those trials in our lives in order to accomplish what he wants for us. Think about Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, finding himself in a series of unfortunate events, finding himself in the court of Pharaoh. And Joseph told Pharaoh to store up food and water before a mighty famine comes to the land. And Joseph becomes Pharaoh's second in command. And when the famine finally hits, his brothers, who initially threw him into slavery, come asking him for help. They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And toward the end of Genesis, Joseph and his brothers finally reconcile. And Joseph says this, You, my brothers, intended harm for me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So all that mess that Joseph found himself in, jail, slavery, wrong accusations, God used in order to bring Joseph to a place where he could save the lives of all the hungry in the land. So those trials that you're going through right now, they have a purpose. And chances are that purpose is to help you grow in your faith and in your relationship with God. Or perhaps their purpose is that so you can be a witness of God's remarkable grace when tragedy hits the lives of those you love. So God uses trials to grow us in our faith and closer to Him. The second thing we can remember is this, is that our response to trials should be joyful yet wise. Now, I'll be real. When you're going through a trial, you don't want to be joyful, okay? You want to rip out your hair, or you want to punch someone, or something. And yet our response should be to be joyful 
and wise. And that's tough to do. If you've ever been through a trial, you know it's tough to do. But look at it this way. God is using that trial to make you stronger and grow you closer to him. And last time I checked, those are good things. Trials don't have to make you happy. But our attitude should be joyful because God considers us worthy to go through a trial. Again, going back to Job, think about how righteous he was and how much he loved God and yet how much damage God allowed Satan to do to him. Why? Because God knew that Job would come out of the trial stronger than ever. And when you look at it from the perspective of history, you see that it all worked out in the end. That's why we can be joyful because God is making things right even today through the gospel. Not only do we have to be joyful, we need to ask for wisdom when we're going through the tough stuff. Why? Because we need wisdom to help us handle a trial. Just because we're going through a trial doesn't mean we have to be passive. No trials by their very nature require activity. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to fix something. Maybe you need to work something out with someone. All those things require wisdom. And that's why James exhorts us to ask for wisdom boldly because trials require it. And perhaps the most important piece of this all is that we have to remember that it's all good. Now, I could have titled this sermon, Getting Through Trials or Tough Times or In the Dirt or whatever, but I decided to title it, It's All Good. Why? Because it is. Because those trials you're going through are changing you more and more into the person that God wants you to be. That's good. That temptation that you're struggling with, God's not doing that to you. And that's good. And what's most good is that God is birthing you into the image of his son, Jesus. That's the gospel right there. That this world, that human souls are being restored back to the way it was supposed to be before human beings messed it all up in the Garden of Eden. That's the gospel. And that's the good news. And that's what we celebrate right now. The good news. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. And we're going to take communion here in the last three songs. This good news that Jesus took upon himself all of our sins, nailed himself to the cross so that we may have life. He endured the trial of punishment so that we wouldn't have to. And this meal is a reminder that God has taken all of our sins, all the bad stuff that we've ever done, that we're doing, that we will do. He's taken them and cast them to the bottom of the ocean floor. It's a reminder that God is with us despite times we feel alone and isolated. So in a moment, I'm going to invite everyone to come up here. You can sing. Um, come up here to the, to the tables. Take communion. Rip off a hunk of bread. Don't, don't be skimpy with it, okay? Rip off a hunk, okay? Because frankly, I don't want leftover bread, okay? Rip off a hunk and dip it into the cup. And if you needed gluten-free elements, uh, the, the bread on the green trays, the, I'm sorry, the green square plate, that's gluten-free if you need that. But use this time as a reminder that even though you may be going through a trial, even though things are tough, even though you want to rip your hair out or punch someone or something, or even blame God, know that God is using that pain to make you more and more and more into the image of his son. This is the time that we celebrate that death is not the end, that we have life to look forward to, and that Jesus raised from the dead, and we have that hope that we can look forward to that God's making everything new and right and good. Let us pray.
Dear Lord, we thank you that it's all good. We thank you that all the stuff that you bring into our lives is for our good, Lord. Thank you for being good and not tempting us, Lord. I pray that you'll help us to get through these trials with grace and peace and strength, Heavenly Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.